Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. Amen. Um, well, so today the, the topic is worship in the prayer book tradition, which I think like all of you are pretty familiar with. <laughs> um, so, but uh, we're going to talk about it anyway. Um, um, Do you want a prayer book for everybody? Uh, no, no, I, I have a handout, and I'll get to that in a minute. I just want to sort of clear the throat with some thoughts, and then maybe, um, and then we'll dive into the handout. But, um, you know, uh, the, so we're, the Cathedral Church of the Advent, part of the Episcopal Church, um, part of the Anglican Communion, historically uh, reaching back to the Reformation in England, uh, which we've brought up uh, last time, I think, the... Uh, topic was Anglican theology and history, and Gil should have talked about some of that. It's difficult to tease apart Anglican history and theology from its prayer book tradition, so I assume that Gil probably brought some of the worship up already, but this time we'll sort of really kind of dive in into that uh, to the extent that we can for about a half hour or so, and I hope to leave enough time for your questions, um, but uh, there is no book of common prayer. It doesn't exist. It's a myth. It's an idea, really. I mean, there is in that it exists in our mind, but there is no one book of common prayer. Um, we have one here <coughs> in the um, pews, which is from the Episcopal Church, which was ratified in 1979. And believe it or not, the Episcopal Church is working on a, another revision, which is, a, you know, but this was 36, seven years ago. I mean, it's been quite a while. Uh, it, 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 for a lot of people, they, they still call it the new prayer book, <laughs> you know, which, I mean, it was written before I was born. Um, but, because the church is constantly changing, for better or for worse, and the prospect of a new prayer book, which probably won't be a book of common prayer, it'll probably be a series of authorized liturgies and pamphlets and booklets for authorized for use which will be more economical because this kind of undertaking costs millions of dollars to get a new church publication that everybody has to use and get rid of these ones and it's uh, you know a huge waste of paper but um, so I, I'm assuming that's where we'll go but the Book of Common Prayer in its first instance in England started in 1549 with Thomas Cranmer, who I'm assuming you've all heard of, uh, English uh, theologian of the Reformation, was the Archbishop of Canterbury under Henry VIII. Henry VIII was not, even though he allowed for certain changes in the, 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 the Church of England to happen, he wasn't, he wasn't necessarily a Protestant. Um, and so... The, the revisions were slow going, but in 1549, to say the least, it went from Latin to English, which is massive. I mean, massive, massive, massive. You have to imagine that these people, their whole lives and their ancestors were worshiping in Latin. And so that alone, to change into the vulgar language of the people, was a, was a, was a big prospect. And so the 1549 prayer book looked a lot like uh, the uh, prayer tradition in the Cathedral of Salisbury, which you could tell me where exactly that is. Is that northern England? No. 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 Su southern? Okay. Is it near Canterbury then? Is it Kent or no? Uh, no. No? no. Sort of west. <coughs> Southwest. Okay, so the opposite side 
opposite coast uh, from Canterbury, but nonetheless, that was the tradition. It was called the Sarum use. And so that was a medieval Roman Catholic uh, prayer use. And, uh, in, and throughout medieval Europe, uh, Roman Catholic Europe, there was no one um, prayer that was used in church. There were these different localized uses that were authorized. And so what Cranmer did is he took the Sarum use for the most part. He made some changes, um, and, but he translated it into English. And then when Henry VIII finally died, his son, Edward VI, was a boy. And so basically these men who were rearing to like make all these changes under Henry VIII, but Henry allowed for some changes and then things scaled back. You know, he was a very, uh, he's probably psychologically damaged man. And so to, to you had to be very careful about what you were doing and sort of um, make the changes that you can with diplomacy. And that's the other thing I'll say about the, the, the prayer book, at least in England, is it's so wrapped up in the politics of the nation. Um, and so this wasn't, nece- it wasn't just a sort of religious or Christian undertaking. This was a political undertaking as well. Um, and so when Edward VI, who was a boy, became king, they were like, yes, let's start to make the changes we want. And so that's when the, the second uh, prayer book under Cranmer came into effect in 1552. And then there was uh, Mary, who reversed everything. She was a Roman Catholic and executed uh, people like Cranmer. Um, because again, the politics and the religion were so interwoven. Not just Cranmer, but uh, 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 Ridley and Latimer uh, burned at the stake. Um, and so went from these Protestant changes for a very brief window of time. I mean, the 1552 was barely used. Uh, and then uh, uh, Mary, after Mary, her, her uh, sister Elizabeth, uh, she ascended to power, and she was a Protestant. So things were going back and forth. And Elizabeth was thoroughly a Protestant, whereas her father was confused and psychologically damaged, and there was so much politics wrapped in it. She, um, the, the prayer book then that came under her power was the 1559. Uh, and so they were allowed to, to bring things back um, in this prayer book tradition, this Protestant tradition, and, and start to make even more of the changes. Uh, uh, and it was, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Protestant document from its beginning. Um, and you have to understand that because now when we go to church, people say, well, that looks high church, right? When you see this in the morning and people say, that looks like Catholic light. Well, I take issue with that, though there were movements throughout the history of the Church of England where people wanted more and greater degrees of religiosity. Uh, there were the Laudians who, uh, during the um, 17th century under Archbishop Laud, brought in more um, things like candles and uh, the, the, the different vesture and the ornamentation. Um, there's also often arguments between altars and tables, altars made of stone against the wall. So that the idea of Christ being sacrificed each time was profane to somebody with Protestant inclinations who wanted a wooden table in the midst of the people would be ideal, but at least taken back from the wall so that the priest could stand behind it and face the people. And uh, so after 1559, there was the 1604. Shortly thereafter, you know, civil war, more and more political strife. The Puritans came into power for a certain period of time, and so the, 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 the prayer book tradition, which was Protestant, was suppressed because it looked too traditional, 
too much that's reeked of Catholic Catholicity, even in its Protestantism, and the Puritans who were in power suppressed that for a time uh, after uh, Charles I, the king, was executed. And some of these people practiced their piety with the prayer book tradition in private, um, you know, underground, or they moved to continental Europe um, and continued the prayer book tradition over there. Um, and uh, after this interregnum period, uh, Charles II came back into power in 1661, is that correct? You probably, I don't know. I keep looking at the British people who are probably like, what do we know? We haven't lived there in, in two decades. But um, uh, the, and so the prayer book after that uh, period, um, when uh, Charles, King Charles II, the son of Charles I, who was executed, uh, is the one that is still authorized in England was created is the 1662 prayer book. This is still the prayer book of England for 300 some odd years. And you have to imagine the people that created this never intended that to be the case. But from what I understand, in order to change the prayer book in England means an act of parliament. And that would be a massive undertaking. So like I've said about the Episcopal Church, I think instead of going the way of the prayer book, um, the, uh, the, uh, the Episcopal Church will probably create authorized uses, and that's what England's done with things like what's called now Common Worship, which is a modern book in the prayer book tradition, but is not called the Book of Common Prayer, though it's basically based on it in modern language, because in here you have Elizabethan language, which this wasn't even under Elizabeth. This was under Charles II. And so this was, to begin with, a little bit antiquated. <laughs> uh, and part of that is because with liturgy, remember I said the Book of Common Prayer is an idea, it's not an actual artifact that you can point to. You're constantly reaching back to what was before. I mean, in our communion service, we have words from Jesus. And not only in the liturgy, I mean, not, and we read the scripture, but the elements of the liturgy that we use, but there are even things that stretch beyond that, and it's ritual to Judaism, uh, you know, reciting the Psalms, and things that we don't know that are part of our just sort of historic DNA that go into this. And then you're living in the moment and trying to think about, how does this speak to the people here? It's based on a sense of tradition and antiquity, and so therefore it carries its authority of, of, of what's come before. I mean, even Cranmer didn't ex dealo out of nothing write the 1549. He drew from the serum use. And then he, uh, one of the places where he, he beautifully tweaked the language was with the collects. Even those collects of Thomas Cranmer were from the medieval church, and he just repackaged them to be more scriptural uh, and uh, uh, reformational. Gosh, I'm low on time. Um, and so the 1662 has really been the prayer book of the Angli worldwide Anglican communion because that's the one that's been around so long. It's been the one that so many other uh, provinces in the Anglican communion have drawn to. Just as Cranmer reached back to the serum and medieval uses, um, you know, the Episcopal Church to a certain degree, but lesser than other provinces, uh, provinces in places like Africa in Asia, uh, in Europe, 
reach to the 1662 prayer book because the missionaries who brought Anglicanism to their country brought this prayer book. But in the United States and Virginia, they probably brought the 1604 prayer book because the colony in Williamsburg was founded before the 1662 prayer book. But even more so than that, we have an influence on the Book of Common Prayer in the Episcopal Church uh, from the Scottish prayer book, and that's because um, the first bishop in the, to be consecrated a bishop in the Episcopal Church was consecrated in Scotland, and there were some um, sort of uh, some deals that kind of made liturgically that were that came with that. So our our, our communion service uh, has more of a, 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 a look of the communion service of the church in Scotland. The Advent has changed that, though. We've looked to the 1662 more recently in our edit, and the one that I handed out to you that you had at 9 o'clock, um, uh, uh, of paring down the communion service um, to, to look more like what it does with the, um, the 1662. But, you know, think about all that I've said for 2016, the United States of America, Birmingham, Alabama, and what it means to worship in the prayer book tradition. Um, there's uh, one of the documents I handed out to you is the preface to the first uh, prayer book in the Protestant Episcopal Church in the United States of America. After the, again, politics and religion, uh, the Church of England, American Revolution, Still Anglicans in the United States, prayer book, praise about the uh, sovereign in England, so they've got to create their own prayer book, um, no longer under the Bishop of London, and so along with the revolution became the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States of America and its own prayer book ratified in 1789. That's what this is a preface to that. But let me just read to you these couple of paragraphs with, I think, have an intent that echo what I've just said, even back to 1789, and they're even, they're even reaching back to what the, uh, the, the, the church in England had done before them. And so look at the second paragraph there under the heading preface. The Church of England, to which the Protestant Episcopal Church in these states is indebted under God for her first foundation and a long continuance of nursing care and protection, hath in the preface of her Book of Common Prayer laid it down as a rule that the particular forms of divine worship and the rites and ceremonies appointed to be used therein, being things in their own nature indifferent and alterable, and so acknowledged, it is but reasonable that upon weighty and important considerations, according to the various exigencies of time and occasions, such changes and alterations should be made therein. As to those that are in place of authority should, from time to time, seem either necessary or expedient. The same church hath, not only in her preface, but likewise in her articles and homilies, declared the necessity and expediency of occasional alterations and amendments in her forms of public worship. And we find, accordingly, that seeking to keep the happy mean between too much stiffness in refusing and too much easiness in admitting variations and things once advisedly established, she hath, in the reign of several princes, since the first compiling of her liturgy in the time of Edward the Sixth, upon just and weighty considerations, her thereunto moving, yielding to make such alterations in some particulars as in their respective times were thought uh, convenient. Yet so as 
that the main body and essential parts of the same, as well as in the chiefest materials, as in the frame and order thereof, have still been continued, firm and unshaken. Well, what does that mean? It's a, sort of almost like legalese language, uh, uh, but uh, written by Americans in 1789. Um, it's saying that this stuff is never meant to be fossilized. Um, and and the, the tradition is helpful, and we rest on that. Uh, but we don't want to have, what is the phrase, which is it was just from the, the English Book of Common Prayer, we don't want to have um, too much stiffness in refusing, nor too much easiness in admitting variations, um, which means it's a patient process of constantly leaning on the shoulders of what's come before, and yet not allowing that to become stiff or fossilized, rigid, antiquated, sort of a historic artifact. Because if we continue to do what we do in the morning here for another 30, 40 years just like that, our church will die because we'll become irrelevant. And it's funny that we still use that sort of Elizabethan thee, thy, and thou. And that sounds so formal to people. But do you know that thee, thy, and thou is the informal uh, address uh, in, in uh, Elizabethan English. It's like if you speak French, they have the, the two form and the vous form. Thee, thy, and thou is like the two form in either French or Spanish. And uh, vous in uh, French or usted in Spanish is a lot more like you. And we've just over the sort of uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The, um, the, the, um, Gosh, I'm blanking. As the as the language evolves, as, uh, we we've they've come together, um, and uh, so anyway, uh, I am the pastor of our five o'clock service here at the Advent, which tends to be, you know, I struggle to articulate what it is when I talk to people, uh, other than it's you know the music is different, um, but we sing hymns. It's not simply praise and worship music, though at first blush people might think that. And it's a place where you could probably wear shorts and people wouldn't think twice about it, you know? So it's a more casual place. And I think it's the one place here at the Advent where you can make some liturgical changes and not lose your head quickly. Um, and so I've been, you know, the, the liturgy is evol it's constantly evolving at that service. And I think that's the way it will be. It, it, will, it will remain dynamic and yet without too much what is it, easiness and uh, altering, you know, I mean, it's constantly, we're constantly thinking about, well, why are we doing this in our tradition, but how does it speak to our people here in Birmingham, and there's a, a, a draft attached to the um, handout I gave you, of the uh, order of communion that I'm working on, and we don't have time to go through it, but um, I'll just point a few things out, um, that uh, it draws the, its structure, for the most part, from the 1662 English Book of Common Prayer, though, for the most part, it's in modern language. There are a few places where there are the, these, thys, and thous. Ponder this, why do we still say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name? Well, because those words are so comfortable and so near and dear to the heart that that is a very difficult one to alter without people getting upset. Another one is Psalm 23. You know, people really like the King James Version uh, because it's in our historic DNA or memory. Even if you're not a Christian, you know, I mean, you've heard those prayers 
so often that you're familiar with that articulation. Um, so we, re we maintain the thee, thy, and thou here with the Lord's Prayer, but we take it out in other places. And we have been at this service, though, when we say the Lord be with you, we say and also with you. I've changed it in this new updated liturgy to and with thy spirit. Because I feel like at the Advent, it's an identity marker. Uh, there's something about when you're at a gathering here at the Advent and you say, the Lord be with you, 95% of the people are going to say, and with thy spirit. And so for that reason, I thought, well, it should be here because this is a part of the Cathedral Church of the Advent. But those are the only two places. I've gotten rid of the opening acclamation because to me it seems kind of churchy. Um, at the beginning where we say, Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Instead, we just start with as the 1662, as the 1928 prayer book in um, the Protestant Episcopal Church uh, in the United States did. We start with let us pray and the collect for purity because there's just no better way to start the service with that prayer, uh, which I read here to start our discussion, Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. And also, this is something that doesn't exist in the modern edit of the 1979 prayer book, is either the summary of the law or the decalogue. And I think that's a huge misstep, because I think... Uh, worship, you need to feel the full weight of God's law at the beginning. I think I started this whole series with the discussion of God's law and how historic uh, colonial churches did well to have the Ten Commandments lift, listed at the front of the church so you could be encountered with the full weight of God's law and it points a mirror at you and highlights your need for his uh, forgiving mercy and grace, restoration through reconciliation on behalf of Jesus Christ. So to get there, we either have the summary of law or the Decalogue um, will be a choice. And then moving on, the, the, the structure is quite the same to what we have in the morning, though uh, aside from the Collect of the Day where I've added, and with thy spirit, for the most part, it's modernized language that people hear on the street, and I drew from uh, common worship in England for a lot of this, but not all of it. And then uh, the reading, the creed, all the same. But here's where things get a little bit different, and this is like the uh, 1662, the prayers of intercession and thanksgiving uh, happen before we move on to the communion stuff. Uh, so you can see there's the, the prayers the welcome message, the offer, taking up the offertory, doxology, that's normal. But then an exhortation to take seriously what's about to happen in the communion, not very long. And then skipping to the next page, now we have confession, which do you see is in a different spot than the way we do it in the morning? Mm. Uh, uh, right before receiving communion, confession, absolution, and then next page, comfortable words, and then from the comfortable words straight into the communion prayers, uh, I, I find that movement, which was in the 1928 prayer book, beautiful to go from confession, comfortable words to lift up your hearts. You've been weighed down so much during the liturgy of the word at the beginning of the service with all this, the law, the confession, 
lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. And then receiving God's uh, reconciliation uh, symbolized through the communion, which here starts with the prayer of humble access rather than ends because we're coming to this coming to this your table merciful lord trusting not in our own righteousness but in yours and now that we've come with humble access we skip to the next page and have the prayers of consecration uh, and the rest of the service is pretty comparable at that point to what we're now doing in the morning other than modernized language well i've got Two, three minutes. Any questions, reactions? That was just an example of, I hope, a distillation of all that I've tried to talk about, basically, <laughs> with that, that service. I think it's, it's fascinating. I mean, because you can know the, the book exists, but never have known its heritage to that extent. Yeah. So it'd be interesting to have a whole other class. I mean, seriously, it would be, I mean, it's fascinating to think of. The whole the heritage. Structural changes. Yeah. And again, yeah. I recommend this book to you. Uh, okay. It's called The Book of Common Prayer, the text of the 1549, 1559, and 1662, published by Oxford, uh, and it's edited by a guy named Brian Cummings. This came out a few years ago, and it has most of the text of the first, the. 1549, it skips the 1552, because it basically didn't even exist. The 1559 and then the 1662 has the entire 1662, but just excerpts of the others. And he talks about a lot of this heritage, and uh, and then you can kind of flip back and forth and see the nuances between those. I don't know. We ought to carry it. Hey. I was just thinking as well, the... The Common Prayer Book, what's the relationship of that to the King James Bible when it was first translated into English? So not uh, a Book of Common Prayer in relationship to King James? Mm. Well, King James was uh, 1611, I think. So it's so before it's the Civil War. Sort of been 100 years before. But there are similar projects in that they are mediating documents because the King James Version of the Bible... Uh, was written by people from across the sort of ideological spectrum yes. of the Church of England. And so was the 1662, though the bishops who were involved in the 1662 prayer book project, they were, you could tell they were in charge. The Puritans had this list of like 90-something exceptions to the prayer book, and only like 10 or 11 of those were taken into consideration because the bishops basically agreed with those exceptions anyway. And then you can see, therefore, after the 1662 becomes a greater and greater schism between the Church and Church of England and Puritanism evolving into uh, English Presbyterianism and other denominations, once there was tolerance for it. Because for a period, there was, it was intolerance. Church of England, that's it, you know? But uh, shortly after the 1662, I forget how many years, there was um, other denominations were tolerated. Um, but the King James and the, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, I think, have some similarities in their formation. Mm. And again, the political and religious intertwine. King James I is named for him. And the 1662 done quickly created after the ascension of um, 
Charles II. Um, well, uh, I think some of you might be going to the 11 o'clock, so I don't want to yeah, hold you so up, you but I hope this was helpful. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think we have one more meeting. Is that? No, t two more. Two more. Two more. Two more. Two more. Two more.